0: welcome back this is the second part of that one recording about jesus so this is the rest of the episode and i pray that this is fruitful and that you enjoy god bless you so let's talk a little bit now about the shroud of tyran So the shroud, the shroud is what, like the linen that Jesus's body would have been wrapped in. Uh, After his body was taken down from the cross, he would have been wrapped in this linen, which is called the shroud. And then it's called the shroud of Turin because it it currently is in Turin, which I believe is in Italy. Let me double check. Yep, it's in Italy. (laughs) All right, so uh, when they first started doing experiments on this, in 1988, they started doing carbon dating. So 1980 they started doing carbon dating Which tries to identify the time that this dates back to So the carbon dating only came back to the 1300s Dang it, unfortunate But not so fast So more scientists. So there were a ton of ex- scientists that examined it We'll talk about this in a little bit There was 2000 scientists that studied it But the people that studied the carbon dating They saw that the carbon dating was done in, in a lot of error In a quite a few different ways So first off, they took it from one spot which typically in carbon dating you want to take it from multiple spots and very prominent parts of the shroud in this case but they took it from one spot and it's from a corner so this shroud is extremely old so the very ends of it were frayed they were all beaten up and then also uh the sides of, like the, it was not the original cloth on the corners on the sides because it had a different weave and linen and that is because this is a shroud that is extremely old and the shroud has been through three fires. One of those fires got to be so hot, they got over to 900 degrees, which actually, one changes the, the dynamic of the cloth itself, but actually at that time, in that fire, there was also silver next to it, and it burned uh, that silver into 24 different spots on the shroud. So, uh, there's uh, quite a few reasons right there, but also, Even just carbon dating that people, that experts do on like the cloth around mummies, the cloth almost always consistently comes back that the cloth is much younger than the mummy, which we know isn't true because at the time of death, then the person is mummified. So typically, the cloth always dates younger than the actual person that's in the cloth. And uh, just a hint here Jesus is not found in that cloth, but his blood marks are. (laughs) So. Uh, So this shroud, the measurements of it is 3 feet 7 inches by 14 feet 3 inches, which are actually extremely specific uh, size measurements. So it's actually 4 cubits by 1 cubit uh, in Jewish way of counting. And like I said earlier, there's 2,000 scientists that have studied this in 30 years. 95% of them have become Christians. So these 2,000 Christians, or 2,000 scientists, hopefully they're are 2,000 Christians now, but... 2,000 scientists, they were atheists, agnostics, and skeptics. 95% of them have become Christians. So let's just kind of set the tone right there when we got dive into the findings that they had about the shot of Tirin. So just really quick, these scientists, what is so beautiful about this is like what we were talking about in the last episode, talking about science and faith and faith and science. This is a perfect example how science actually supports the faith because of uh the church has never been opposed to science and actually the church invented the scientific method it was actually by a jesuit priest and uh science asks they just asked two different questions science asks what and how faith asks who and why so it does not contradict each other because both come from the same god they're both studying nature of the same god that instituted and gave us existence itself so they do not contradict each other and in this perfect instance of the shout of tyran we're going to see that science actually supports the faith of jesus being a real real uh person that lived he was killed, crucified, was wrapped in this Shroud of Tyran, and he was resurrected. So within that shroud, just Google Shroud of Tyran, and you're going to see the face of Jesus, I'm telling you. I keep it within one of my smaller Bibles and meditate on it, but... Um, so there's the blood marks that actually show just the entire body of Jesus, extreme, just covered all in blood, and you can even see his face and, and all of these things. So the first thing they did obviously was test the authenticity of this blood. Like, is it paint? Is it pigment or dye? Nope, it's no, it's none of those. And then also they had the image has a negative image, so it's a specific type of technology that brings out the image even more. And they did not have this technology in the 700s, 1300s, or even 1800s. And yet it has a negative image where you can see everything pop out. And then with on the Shroud of Tiran, there's 58 species of pollen. 45 of those 58 species of pollen come from the Holy Land. 18 of those uh, species of pollen only come from the Holy Land. And then uh, from the sizing of the Shroud of Tyrian and the markings on it, you can tell that Jesus was roughly about five foot nine and three quarters of an inch, which is actually relatively tall for his day. Um, and then just to talk about what Jesus went through for us, so the Jewish law was that a person could be scourged thirty-nine lashes, so no more than that. Well, the Jewish people, when they uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to be uh, um, killed for blaspheming the law of Moses, they gave him over to Pontius Pilate in the Roman empire so that they could crucify him and torture him, which would be scourging. Uh, they could do this to him as a criminal. So what they originally did was they said that they're going to scourge him, but they're not going to kill him. They're just going to scourge him. Well, the, so obvious the Romans did not, followed that law of those 39 lashes, 39 lashes that the Jewish law had, obviously. So what they beat Jesus with, with was a wooden stick that was a foot long, and the end of of it had two to seven straps, and at the end of those straps were hooks, glass, pieces of bone, and uh, they Struck Jesus from every single angle possible. They hit him on his, from the, basically from the base of his head all the way down to his feet. And they struck him over three times as much as the Jewish law uh, rec- or, uh, calls for those 39 lashes. Jesus was struck 120 times. And even the forensic science behind it, that identifies two men scourging his back. Which by the way, as I'm saying this, this all lines up perfectly to what the Gospels say of Jesus's death. There was so there's two there were two men scourging his back with one man more into it. They can tell that one side was extreme was much more aggressive. And they wrap around his side and into his chest around his arms, his legs. It's brutal. And then Uh, We read in the Gospels that he was crowned with thorns. A lot of people, they see Jesus with a crown of thorns, like this perfect, beautiful circle, as beautiful as a crown of thorns could be. But actually, from it, they can see that it's more of a helmet or a cap. They pressed down this, this thorn. And actually, the, the pollen they found is from a very specific type of thorn bush. The, and the thorns on that are around 2 to 4 inches long. And there's 14 spots that show up on, on the shroud where the thorns dug into his entire head. So you see it on his forehead, the back of his head, which is really bad, the sides of his head, and uh, even the top of his head. And you can also, they can also tell from the forensic science of studying the Shroud of Terran that two men were beating his face. Again, this is consistent with uh, the gospel's um, uh, recollection of Jesus being beaten by two men when they said that the, Jesus was blindfolded and two men were beating him and they were yelling at him to prophesy who hit them. Jesus is God, he knew. Uh, there was two men beating his, beating his face, one on his left and one on his right. The one on his right was much more aggressive. They beat him with a stick that was one and three-quarter inches in diameter that they were hitting him in his face with. His right eye and cheek are swollen. His nose is dislocated. His cartilage was torn from his nasal spine. And the wound delivered to the eye is indicative of, indicative of an upward blow, and it was an inward blow towards his nose. And then uh, the blood that's on the Shroud of Tirin, the scientists are kind of dumbfounded on how the image is imposed on the cloth. The scientists have really no idea how it happened. There's only uh, one thing that can really uh, explain what happened to it and I'm going to talk about this in a second but just to back up so the blood also one man couldn't couldn't believe that this was Jesus because the blood was the blood on the cloth was still red and it usually turns a specific color after that long of a time 2000 years it's not going to stay that same color but actually it forms this specific color of blood when your heart is under so much torture. Jesus' heart would have been inflamed. His body was in shock. And it produces this very specific fluid. So when Jesus' heart was pierced, it, it, it uh, this very specific fluid came from his heart. And it stays red for that long. It does not go away. So this Jewish man it was like, Yeah, you're right. This is Jesus. <laughs> and and by the way, you can see the marks on his hands uh, from the nails, on his feet from the nails, and the imprint on his side from where he was pierced with the lance. And so there's really only one way that scientists can explain how the imprint is there. And how they explain it, these 2,000 scientists that were all skeptics or atheists or agnostics who are almost all Christians now, they can only explain it by this as an instant blast of light heat and radiation the imprint on the shroud is only six microns thick which is thinner than the string of hair which is imprinted on the top layer so these scientists conclude that the image was imprinted as a moment of the resurrection that penetrated the cloth that moment of the resurrection was this instant blast of light heat and radiation so from the shroud jesus did not passively die for us he was fully active. He was not on the defense. He is not a victim in the sense that he was guilty of something and therefore he deserved this punishment. He is, uh, he is the aggressor. He was on the o- offense. He came and attacked Satan. He, uh, and he defeated the kingdom of darkness. He was on the offense. In Mark three twenty seven, Jesus uh, says that. Um, He binds the strong man and then plunders his house, and this is the perfect image of what Jesus does for us. He binds the strong man, Satan, and then he plunders his house, and that's where he saves us. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, his light. He gives us back our identity as children of God, and we become adopted sons and daughters in Jesus of the Father again and just really quick too that adoption word is very powerful in the jewish uh in that first century um uh i guess environment because adopted children once you adopted somebody you can never abandon them but that lived in a time where it's kind of like the culture of death like we have now like throwaway culture if it's a kid that you don't want just get rid of it but adoption you can never ever abandon that and that's a powerful image that uh in jesus when we're baptized we are adopted sons and daughters we are beloved children of god and jesus restores our identity of who we are and who we operate out of which is the father's perfect love who jesus came to reveal and so just to back up again jesus was not passive he's not weak he is perfect strength he was not on the defense he was on the offense he was not a victim he was fully going after satan just for us to give us life he came to die to give us life he willingly gave his life for ours in john 10 18 he says no one has taken my life away from me but i lay it down on my own accord i have authority to lay it down and i have authority to take it up again jesus is not weak he is perfect strength he is god he can do anything and when jesus says that he's meek meekness a lot of people get that, uh, that term messed up. That meekness, they think it means weak or weakness. Well, the meaning of meekness actually comes from uh, basically... Um, breaking down a wild stallion powerful horse is this horse that without this meekness he's just wild like he his, his power means nothing because he just is wild like he can't harness it in anything but then he becomes meek and he harnesses that power into something and jesus harnesses his divinity, he harnesses that divinity to defeat sin and death and the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of satan to defeat it all in his divinity he gave us an eternal remedy in himself and so jesus right here he is the offerer he is the eternal high priest and he's also off he's the offering he offers himself he is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and i love this picture uh i love meditating on this psalm eighty five ten. it says that uh ju- justice and mercy shall kiss jesus is where justice and mercy shall kiss he is that perfect image he came for you personally and nothing you have done is greater than his love and mercy for you so never be afraid that that is a lie that uh we've gone too far there's nothing that he can do one our sins don't surprise him he is outside of time he knew what we were going to do he came to defeat that but he wants to you he gave you free will to respond to that love and mercy don't let that lie of the evil one overcome you jesus's love is greater his, his mercy is greater I've seen healing in my own life, and I'll talk about that later when I talk about miracles. But my goodness, Jesus loves you so much. Uh, he was on the offense for you. He came to save the world. Ooh, I love you, Jesus. Okay, so and then also just from the from the New Testament too, his teachings were not easy at all. His teachings were really tough to handle. Go read uh, Matthew five where he says the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are basically. Uh, seem to be impossible to live out yet jesus gives us the grace to do so he tells us to sell everything and follow him he tells us to pick up our own cross and follow him to be his disciple he says we're going to be hated and persecuted he his teachings on following him is are not easy he doesn't give an easy sales pitch to follow them at all and yet the apostles follow him Like if anybody were to ever tell me that, or like imagine getting a job and uh, like going to a job interview and they're like, Hey, following me is going to be tough. People are going to hate you. You're going to be even persecuted in order to do this job. You're going to have to sell everything. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go to the next job interview. Yet Jesus, what he says is true because who he is is true. So, and Jesus was not afraid of that. But and his apostles, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they saw the miracles that he did in his life. His entire life attested to his divinity, and his, especially his last three years when he actually went into ministry. But his, his sovereignty and his power over life and death from that cross, he defeated the cross with his resurrection. That is why we follow him. And even his tough teachings, now I know where it comes from his perfect love. He has zeal for his father's house. He loves us. He loves you so much that he's not going to soften the truth for us. And that's what the Catholic church does too. And Jesus, uh, he was so willing. So he was so willing to allow his followers to leave him. So if you read in John 6, the bread of life discourse, where Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life indeed and he ca- he says that his his flesh is true food his j- his blood is true drink people leave him they're like this guy is out of his mind people leave him and guess what he gets even more aggressive with his language <laughs> if you don't chew on my on chew on my or gnaw on my flesh there's no life in you <laughs> there's no life in you he doesn't soften his language at all. And then he turns to his apostles, his very own 12. Do you guys want to leave me too? Because what I speak is spirit and truth. And then we all can say, whether we understand his teachings or not, or the Catholic Church's teachings or not, well, one, they're never arbitrary. Two, it just takes discerning, and the church has profound teachings. And you will see the. The dignity and the value that they have to give us our dignity as human beings uh, and the our eternal value given to us by Jesus in the incarnation. Anyway, so uh, he is just not will, willing to compromise with the truth because he he loves us so much, and we can say now even with Saint Peter on t- stuff that we might under, not understand, and we can say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And he has the words of eternal life because Jesus said he was God. He said that he was going to be crucified and was going to be raised from the dead. And then he actually does it. And that is never going to change. That is a truth 2,000 years ago. That's a truth now. And that is the truth that the Catholic Church is still preaching. Uh, and then also his followers, just they watched him suffer an excruciating and shameful scourging and death as, uh, as if he was a criminal. And even in the midst of persecution and hate, which Jesus said was going to happen, they continued to follow him, even to their own martyrdom. St. Paul, he was persecuted. He persecuted the church at first. He was a faithful Jewish man who was trying to destroy Jesus' church. And then he encountered Jesus, and he gave it all away to follow Jesus and to preach the good news to the Gentiles, the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. And he... Loved the Lord so much that he lost everything. He was beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and then he was ultimately martyred. He was killed for his faith. Peter, the the first, uh, the chief apostle, the first pope, he was crucified upside down in Rome. And all of that is because it's true that Jesus is God and he's defeated sin and death. He gives meaning to suffering. So in Colossians 1.24, St. Paul talks about redemptive suffering. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So the Catholic Church has this beautiful theology of red- on redemptive suffering, just like St. Paul says. There's nothing lacking in Jesus' suffering as if like his, his, uh, passion for us on the cross was inadequate but his church is he is so profoundly in his church that his the body and jesus's headship is is one jesus the head the church the body it's perfectly one and what is what is lacking in the sufferings of christ is our participation in it we can offer these things for other people there is uh, beauty in it. And, and even St. Paul. So we should pray for healing at all times. And I'll talk about this in a second. But well, we should pray for healing. We should ask the Lord to, to, to remove our aches and pains, our, whatever we're going through. Ask the Lord to heal it. Ask him, beg him, beg the Lord. You even see St. Paul. He has this thorn in his flesh in 2, in 2 Corinthians. He has a thorn in his flesh. He's asking the Lord to remove it. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Jesus this redemptive suffering can also purify us. But also he tells uh he he as we see as we see St. Paul asked for the thorn of his flesh to be removed and the Lord says uh, that my power is made perfect in your weakness so there is beauty and redemptive suffering and the catholic church has the most beautiful theology on redemptive suffering and yet it teaches us to ask for healing and also the catholic church there's not a single institution in the entire world that has the, a larger network of ministries that are ordered to relieve pain uh, hospitals orphanages clinics no other uh, institution on the entire face of the planet, gives more uh, order, or gives more effort and money and support to, uh, and it, all those things were invented out of the Catholic Church, but more relief to those pains. So this is beautiful theology. We can—it's its always a both and. We can have redemptive suffering and ask for healing. God, Jesus is both God and man. He is, and we'll talk about that later. And then revelation, it's both by tradition and scripture. It's not a an either or, it's always a both and. And in this case, uh, redemptive suffering and healing, it's a both and. And this is why that uh, St. Paul talks to the Galatians in chapter 4, the Galatians were a Gentile community and learning about Jesus, they were spiritual before. They believed that there was something out there. So like our world today, we're so caught up in, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Well, what spirit are you? (laughs) What what spirits are you dealing with? And this is the truth right here, is Jesus. He came to give you life and life abundantly. And so ask for Jesus's spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Jesus, the eternal and the infinite, they, it touches the uh, finite. It touches our very humanity. Uh, Jesus shared his divinity and, uh, as he shared in our humanity. So at mass, when the priest mingles the water with wine, with wine before the consecration, he says, By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And both of those, well, one, uh, I'll talk about this when we talk about the Eucharist, but the water and wine, it was very likely Jesus actually dipped water and uh, poured water into the wine because the water, the wine was so strong back then that they would usually put a little water in to soften it. But also, this pointed directly to the Eucharist and baptism. The blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' pierced side, which is the place where all graces in the sacramental life of the church flows is from Jesus's cross. And so, just as Jesus hides himself in bread and wine uh, to give us himself in the Eucharist, he also shared his humanity, uh, his divinity, and his humanity. He comes to us so humble just for us to approach him. He became a little baby. <laughs> He doesn't want us to be scared of him he wants us to approach him with confidence knowing just to feel jesus's merciful gaze upon you there's nothing that he can he is he's always willing to accept you he's waiting for you to return uh and then uh, i've heard this a few times too so i'll just address these few quick things so what about people that are living in different parts of the world what if people never hear of jesus what about those people well that does never changes the truth about Jesus and it is extremely true that most people whatever area you grew up in, grow up in it's most likely that you're going to be what that that environment is or your household if you're born into a Jewish family you're most likely going to be Jewish if you're born into a a specific type of Christian tradition, you're probably going to stay in that tradition. But that does not change the truth of Jesus or his church. And if you search for the truth diligently enough, you will find Jesus and you'll find the Catholic Church. And even the church says that there's no salvation outside the church. So let's just talk about that really quick. Well, all people are saved through Jesus. Well, what is the church? The body of Christ. Therefore, there is no salvation outside the church. But that does not mean that people that don't know Jesus because they were born in a different part of the world isn't going to be, aren't, are not going to be saved. God wrote the law on their hearts too. And if they're trying to live a moral life, they're trying to be a good person and their conscience is clear. And even if they don't know, even heard of the name of Jesus, they, they know right from wrong. Uh, they know that there's an objective morality. We can just see it in the very nature. If they truly know that, well, they're not culpable for not knowing Jesus. Of course, Jesus Jesus knows their heart. Jesus is going to accept them. Jesus is the ultimate Savior, though, even if they believe in a different God. But they just don't know Jesus. Well, they're not going to be culpable. Jesus knows their heart. And it's the same thing with uh, people that are Catholic or not Catholic. Jesus knows their heart. They're not culpable, but if they identify the truth and then that actually hits them in the heart, well, they're going to have to answer for that, right? But... Anyways, just living in different parts of the world does not change the truth of Jesus and his church, and everybody will be saved by Jesus, everybody. And then uh, if, okay, so you say, okay, yeah, Jesus, he defeated sin and death, but sin and death are still here. Evil is still here. But let's talk, I mean, Jesus did not come to defeat sin and death in the sense in in the sense to take them away he defeated sin and death given that they happen in our lives he does not he will save us from the grip of sin and he does not want us to be what is the most terrifying thing that most people think of is death and guess what everybody's going to go through it and Jesus doesn't want you to be afraid because it is is dying that you're born into eternal life as uh, Saint Saint Francis of, of Assisi his prayer says but so let's talk about uh, the church fathers um, and just the nature of Jesus and the Trinity. So some common errors of Jesus' incarnation. So we're going to talk about quite a few different councils. So we will see that the councils are um, uh, made up of the magisterium of the church, the authoritative teaching body of the church so the magisterium are all the bishops in union in union with the pope and so they're gathered together to define formal doctrines or dogmas and dogma is a greek word for uh which means decree or decision made by the authoritative body of the church there's been 21 of these councils and you'll even see that uh the first one is the council of jerusalem uh, uh in acts 2:15, and all of these, typically, their formal doctrines come out of people attacking Jesus or heresies that are occurring. For example, uh, we're going to get into quite a few examples, but um, such as like, so dogma is something that is 100% true, which is revealed by divine revelation, such as the Trinity, three persons and one God revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, that, is, that, that is something that Almost every single Christian accepts that there's a Trinity other than our Oneness Pentecostal brothers and sisters and then a few of the quasi-Christian religions, but they all believe in the Trinity, but this is something that you won't find in the Bible this was not formally declared until the Council of Nicaea. And that's actually where we get the Nicene Creed, where we proclaim as Catholics every single Sunday on, on, and on feast days. And that's why we say God from God, light from light, true God from true God, because it is declaring the truth of Jesus, that he is God. And uh, revealed, revealing the Trinity, three persons and one God. And uh, um. And so, like as I was saying, the first council of Jerusalem in Acts fifteen. This is where Peter and the apostles define uh, the um, a formal teaching, and actually, the Greek word dogma is used in the And in, in uh, Acts sixteen four, but let's back up really quick. So the Peter and the apostles they're trying to they're trying to decide. Okay, are we going to? say that people that were not Jewish before need to be Jewish, so they need to be circumcised and follow the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic law in order to be Christians, or can they just be baptized and be Christians? So in Acts 15, we'll see Peter, the chief apostle, the Pope, he stands up and proclaims that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish through circumcision or other ceremonials of the old law, but can become Christian without adopting Judaism first. And then you'll read the assemblies were silenced and accepted it. And the letters of the dogma, that's where, uh, in Acts sixteen four that dogma is used, which is the decision or decree made by the church was sent throughout the churches, just as they are today. All the letters were sent out proclaiming the, f- the official teaching of the church. And you'll even see in there, this says that, um, the Holy spirit and us agree that blah, 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 like, Every single council says that, and there's been 21 of those councils through church history for 2,000 years, which is exactly what Jesus said, is that, that the Holy Spirit will lead you to all truth. So there were some things that Jesus left unsaid for them, because they didn't need to know that now. But he uh, revealed the Father to them, and he started the church, gave them the Holy Spirit for all these uh, future events, such as the councils coming together and the authoritative body of the church, and the Holy Spirit Confirming and heaven backing up the Pope and the bishops' uh, teaching just as Jesus gave them the, the authority to do so. So I just want to give you the background of what a council is, because we're going to talk about a few of these. So common errors of the incarnation. So the incarnation is Jesus Christ, the word, his divinity, becoming in the flesh. So being incarnated in Mary's womb. So the first one is adoptionism. This was Jesus was a mere human being whom God adopted. This was a heresy at the end of the second century who, uh, that was condemned by the church. Uh, There's docetism, which says that Jesus was fully God, but that his humanity was an illusion. That was a second century heresy condemned by the church and again condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and then at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then there's Arianism. Arianism is the fourth century heresy condemned by the church at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and in, again, in Constantinople uh, in 381, that Jesus was not God, but merely God's greatest creation. So let's just stop for a second. So Arianism is saying that God, that Jesus is not God, but he was just God's greatest creation. And actually, these Arians they knew Scripture super well. They know Scripture, but they were teach. They were trying to interpret the Scriptures outside of the church. And that's where we got this heresy from. They were quoting uh, Colossians 1.15, where it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So they were saying that Jesus was not God. He was, uh, he was just merely God's greatest creation. But this is perfect to show you that once I, when I talk about the Bible and uh, just everything, Jesus gave the Catholic Church the authority to interpret Scripture. Because right now, everybody is a lot of people, including myself. Uh, th- this is how I used to be, too. Reading the Bible, trying to figure out what it says for myself, because I believe that the the Bible is perfect, and the Bible is perfect. It is the inerrant Word of God, but it is not easy to interpret. And who has the authority to interpret it? The Catholic Church. Jesus founded that church. He Jesus did not write a Bible but he, and he founded a church in order to proclaim the gospel. And out of the, that church's tradition became this Bible who had, and this church has the authority to interpret. So anyways, I'll get into that in another uh, episode, but, uh, what this scripture, just to talk about really quick, Colossians one 15, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. All the scripture really means is that Jesus inherits all of creation and has dominion over it, just as in many cultures in human history, a first first uh, born human son has rights over his father's property. The very next verse actually says that Jesus created all things. So that same council that came up with the Nicene Creed, uh, and there, this is actually why from this very specific heresy of Arianism that Jesus was not God. That's why we say in the Nicene Creed is that uh, Jesus is God from God, Light from Light, True God from True God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through Him, all things were made. And then another heresy was Nestorianism, which held that Christ is. Not one person, but two. He's God the Son and Jesus Christ. That came from a bishop named Nestorius who believed uh, that Jesus obviously was two persons, which would actually not make a trinity, but it'd make four gods. Or it would say that Jesus' humanity was here on earth, but his divinity stayed in heaven, which is a heresy and that's actually and we'll talk when we talk about mary this is so critical every single time that we talk about uh mary and her and her uh maternity as the mother of god it's actually destroying the christology so any heresy is attacking jesus so even when we talk about mary it's actually an attack on jesus and this is exactly why and we'll talk about that another time but um so this teaching of Nestorianism was actually condemned at the councils of Ephesus in 431, and then again at, in 451, and the Council of Chalcedon. I I think I pronounced that wrong, but but Chalcedon, and that reaffirmed that Christ is one divine person with a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. And then another heresy was called uh, Monophysitism, when this heresy actually correctly taught that Christ is one person, but it erred in teaching that Christ only has one human divine nature, which contradicts the hypostatic union that Jesus is one person with natures, one fully human, which grew in wisdom and understanding from scripture, and the other fully divine, which provided an adequate atonement for sin. For sin, And this uh, heresy was condemned at the council of Chalcedon in 451. And then the last specific heresy that the church dealt with in the first seven centuries of the church is monothelitism, and that is the view that Jesus had only one will. But since Christ has two natures, one fully human and one fully divine, it follows that he actually ha- he has two wills, one human and the other divine, which as we said up about, uh, just before in monophysitism is that um, his fully human uh, will, he-, he grew in wisdom and understanding, and then his other fully divine Provide an adequate atonement for sin, that eternal remedy for for our, the eternal consequences of sin and then also uh, I would just argue too that the Trinity, the Trinity, one, three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that 's probably the most difficult uh, doctrine of the Christian religion to understand. It is not easy to understand. Uh, I know a lot of se- seminarians and they said that their hardest class was the Trinity. And it's hard to wrap your head around, but it's this beautiful image. Um, and that still did not formally, uh, was, that was not formally documented or taught until the Council of Nicaea in 325 by the church. But that was something that was always believed from the beginning, but it was attacked because they were attacking Jesus's nature and his revelation of God. Um, and so then they had to formally document it or formally define it which was their, the dogma of the Council of Nicaea 325 that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit three persons and one God and that is uh, perfectly handed down through that divine revelation given to the apostles and the deposit of faith that Jesus gave them and the Holy Spirit has led the church uh, perfectly in all of its teachings and it leads, it leads the Catholic Church into the fullness of truth And um, so what are the implications of Jesus becoming flesh, the word made flesh? So Jesus, the son of the the blessed Trinity, became flesh. What is the? What are the implications of that? What is the? What are the implications of the incarnation? Well, Jesus. The fact that this happens. So Christians believe that Jesus is our first fruits, and then we'll talk about Mary. But she's already she's experienced what we we'll hope we hope to receive at the at the final judgment when our bodies will be resurrected. But as Christians, we believe that after we die, there's a particular judgment where our souls will be judged, and we'll either be condemned or we can go to heaven and maybe before we go to heaven we'll be purified by jesus's perfect love through purgatory to be cleansed from all attachments to sin and anything that is on our heart uh to be purified by jesus's perfect love in order to enter the kingdom of heaven which revelation says nothing unclean shall enter the the enter heaven so please pray for our faithful departed and then at the final judgment, at Jesus' second coming, our bodies will be reunited with our souls, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And our bodies, so our bodies and our soul have eternal value because of the incarnation, because God became man, resurrected the flesh. And uh, that is our first fruits. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we get to experience that same thing. And because of that, the Catholic Church, since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago, has always taught and will do anything in its power to protect life from conception to natural death, and it will always protect the dignity of life and relationships, and it will always condemn anything that robs us of that human dignity or or, or uh, value or invites us into, invites evil into our lives. Because Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly, and he came to give, give us freedom. So such things as like abortion and contraception, the church will always condemn that. Because it robs us of our dignity, it robs us of our value, and and because of and it's all because of Jesus, he gave himself completely away for the church. He saved us all. He wants all of us to be in his kingdom and he gave us all and he is going to resurrect our body someday and because of that we also love our brothers and sisters that's why the catholic church founded hospitals universities orphanages the education system uh clinics all of these things came out of the Catholic Church because it is the Gospel of Healing, and Jesus wants us to love our brothers and sisters by doing these deeds. And then also, this is why uh, the cat, like the Catholic Catholics, where we venerate relics. Relics are like pieces of saints, or maybe a cloth, or from the saints, or something, like, or anything like that. And this was from the very. Beginning of the church. This was always a thing. Like we'll see, we even see in Acts that uh, people would have Paul, St. Paul, touch a cloth and they would take it to other people to be healed, or people would be waiting for the shadow of St. Peter to pass by in order to be healed, is because people realized that God worked through physical things to manifest Himself, His healing grace, His healing power. To manifest himself just as like the sacraments they're uh, external or a visible reality that communicates an invisible reality so um uh and because of like jesus people the actually people de- and despite of christianity at the beginning they were destroying bodies and actually they would perform cremations out of hatred for the body and that, that's no longer condemned by the church because we realize that people aren't doing it out of hatred anymore. But is, that is why like at the early church, people would fight over these bodies is because we saw the beauty of them that Jesus gave them. We've, we venerate our bodies. We protect our bodies. We love our bodies. The body is, not, is nothing to escape out of it is a body and soul composite we are one person with a body and a soul and both of them need to be protected uh and to live life abundantly here and in the next life and then uh just to end off this section talking about jesus this has been fun (laughs) talking about jesus this is a quote from saint pope leo the great and he said this quote at the actual that council that we've been speaking of that i don't think i've been pronouncing the correct way But he said this at the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, where they taught that uh, there were two natures, human and divine. There was the union of those two natures, human and divine, in the one person, Jesus Christ, who is fully human and fully God. This is St. Pope Leo the Great's quote. Invisible in his own nature, he became visible in ours. Beyond our grasp, he chose to come within our grasp existing before time began he began to exist at a moment in time lord of the universe he hid his infinite glory and took the nature of a servant End quote and after that the entire council said peter has spoken through the mouth of leo so just a beautiful quote i just think sums up jesus very very beautifully and so for this last piece, I want to talk about miracles. Uh, and I'm going to have a full episode talking about healing and everything like that, but just miracles and signs and wonders that are done in Jesus' name. So healings, saints uh, that, that had uh, very special charisms of the Holy Spirit, uh bodies that were incorruptible eucharistic miracles marian apparitions all of these miracles attest to the truth of jesus and uh and in john 10 37 to 38 jesus even says uh if i do them he's talking about his works and his miracles if i do them even though you do not believe believe the works so he's telling people that don't believe that he's god believe the works at least so miracles are meant to break man from the spell of his senses so that he can better direct himself to his ultimate end which is god and this authenticates the claims of his church. Jesus stands apart by working wonders through his own power. So no one's ever done this before. Any any like ancient wonder worker that uh, during that time they aim to astonish and solicit admiration. So Jesus he actually tried to hide himself away so he wouldn't draw too much attention to himself when he is performing all these signs and wonders and healings, and people were flocking to him for healing. But he also stood apart because nobody ever has performed a miracle and by his very own nature, which Jesus did by his very own name. And Jesus is still performing miracles uh, by his, the authority of his name. And, um, so, and after Jesus, we see Jesus, read the Gospel of Mark. Healings everywhere. But, anyways, the apostles' miracles uh, included. So, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. The apostles' miracles included resuscitations from the dead, exorcisms, miracles that were uh, for for cures, which were included like the lame, paralytic, the blind, diseases, uh, handkerchiefs, and shadows. Even healed people, <laughs> as we mentioned before. And they were all preaching, all the apostles were preaching in the name of Jesus. There there were many signs and wonders uh, done among the apostles in Jerusalem. You'll read in Acts chapter 2, 5, and 15. And this was all to promote the message and identity of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about healing some other time. We just have to. It's incredible. Uh, And then also just look out for any of my podcast episodes that are titled p.r.pr. Those are praise reports. So anytime uh, healing occurs or Jesus is just working really powerfully, go ahead and just listen to those real quick. I'll, I'll be brief and short in those. Um, and then, so, well, is it Jesus performing these miracles or somebody else performing these miracles? Well, if someone performs marvelous deeds in the promotion of the gospel, then we can be sure it is not of any other origin, such as like a demonic origin or some other spir- spiritual. It's Jesus. His resurrection, which is the miracle of par excellence vindicates his claims to have power over life and death so um and just really quick touch on this why healings don't always happen or seems like he says no god always will value the power of moral choice with 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 how he created man but sometimes he does perform healings to reveal his love and his mercy for people but that's not to say that he doesn't love and have mercy on everybody his his uh no at that time is not a no his his answer is always a yes, whether it's right then on the spot over time or if it could just be a very delayed yes. It, he came to save you for the resurrection and you can have redemptive suffering as we talked about earlier. Um, and then I've just seen healing in my own life that Jesus has done. I've had... Uh, just so many things in my own life, just things that I've dealt with, uh, just stupid habits or anything anything that I've just dealt with or even anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or just pride or beating myself up or fear, insecurity. Jesus has healed me of all of that in my own life. These own things that these very inner things. Uh, being these these very things that kind of tie us to our identity thinking that this is what makes us who we are. Jesus healed me of all that. He saved me from all that. Um just to talk about a few things uh that I've that I've seen firsthand Jesus do. I've seen Jesus straighten a straighten an elbow before. I've seen Jesus heal knees, heal backs, heal hips. A buddy of mine has his eye was completely healed. It was rolling back on himself because he had overactive REM rim sleeping completely healed. Uh, my mom just had an encounter with the Lord. Her, she had chest pain in the middle of the night. She said, Lord, not tonight. Pain instantly gone. I've seen uh, swelling gone down. My dad, he bumped his shin, praying over this huge hematobin that he had on his shin. The swelling completely goes down. The pain goes down. Uh, I've seen peripheral vision come back. I've seen hearing come. A woman that was deaf could hear out of her ear. Uh, I've seen people that couldn't walk, could walk. Their hips were, straight, were, were straightened. Legs were lengthened. Go look up on YouTube. Legs lengthen, lengthened and uh, prayer of command just look that up. I've seen, uh, um, uh, infertility struggles be healed. I've seen depression, sadness, addiction, all be broken. I've seen a woman's wrist be healed, a back healed, her neck healed, which was the most recent that I've showed, shared on the PR. I've seen, uh, cramps and calf be healed, heels, hips, headaches, gone. <laughs> Jesus is alive here and now. That gospel, that healing was not a first century thing. That wasn't just for Jesus. He allows us to share in his divinity uh, and his divine nature. And he gave that to the apostles. He gave that to every single Christian. We just got to step out in faith and, and realize who we are. We don't perform these things because by what we do, but just of who we are. We operate out of that perfect love that Jesus has. So. I, I'm just so excited to move uh, um, now to, more towards like the Catholic faith, which we will see is particularly because of Jesus. He fulfills all of these things, including all, the entire faith of the, of the Catholic Church. So, And we'll go into subsequent episodes talking about these particular aspects of the Catholic faith and diving more in detail into them. But let's just first talk about all the things that Jesus fulfills from the old testament and just just to show you even before i get started this the bible became alive after becoming catholic reading the scriptures through the lens of the the church who has this unbroken uh unbroken succession from jesus himself so reading from the lens of the writers the apostles the church fathers who knew the apostles and jesus themselves which has been perfectly communicated through sacred tradition of the church reading the bible like that has changed my life that bible is alive and living and is ready to pierce your heart (laughs) man the bible became alive once i became catholic so um just really quick uh, the god of the old testament is the true god and he revealed himself to a fallen people so after the fall God revealed himself to the chosen people. He revealed himself and he made covenants with the with Jewish people. And those were his cho- chosen people, the Israelites. And those were completely different from other religions because all the other religions during that time either had mythological gods or they had multiple gods or they're even worshiping a person or an animal or a statue. So the Israelites' God was the one true God and it was, that was revealed from a higher power and is a historical religion. You can disprove it archaeologically. Um, and no one has been able to do that uh, the god of the, Jude- the judeo-christian god is true and the ultimate key to understanding that old testament is under is understanding who jesus christ is who is love and self-sacrifice that he preached that is who jesus says and once you understand jesus and then go back to old testament whoo that thing comes alive all right, so these are just the things that Jesus fulfilled. So Jesus even says himself that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Not one iota will pass away. So uh, as Hebrews says, he make in the the book of Hebrews in the New Testament it says that there it constantly says a better or a perfected covenant. Better covenant, better covenant. So he did not do away with it. He perfected it. He gave it uh, its perfect fulfillment. Everything in the Old Testament was uh, was revealing Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. So let's just go through a few. Jesus is the new Adam, the new, the Adam that fell. He restores He restores marriage and family, and He gives us our identity back. He fulfills baptism, which was prefigured in the time of Noah and the flood of the world, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, and the and in the Jordan crossing the Jordan River. He is the high priest. He's Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the first high priest who blessed Abraham. And he sacrificed bread and wine. Jesus under the form of bread and wine. Uh, and then his, the, the Aaron's rod, he was the high priest of the Old Testament. The wood of his, uh, the rod is, was a prefigurement to Jesus' cross who would part the Red Sea. And that would be our baptism. And from Jesus' cross flow all graces. Abraham. He was, uh, God revealed to him and Abraham because of his faith. Abraham was willing to even sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And, but God saved him from that. And God himself provided his own lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus. And, Abraham, he said he, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham because he's going to be the father of many nations. And Jesus comes to fulfill that. And then Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who was later named Israel, and the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus perf- perfects that in uh, establishing the 12 tribes. So you even see in the New Testament right away he establishes a 12 uh, disciples, 12 apostles. And guess what? In the New Testament, it also says that the church was built on the pillars of the apostles. <laughs> he is building a visible church, not an invisible, mystical. It is mystical in a sense, but Jesus came and he fulfilled a visible church, which is the Catholic church. Uh, he fulfills Moses in the law. He is the word made flesh. He is. He fulfills the Passover, bo- both in the, the single event, but also in its but also in the, the meals that were instituted to be, be perpetually instituted. He fulfills the Passover event. He is the blood, the blood of the lamb, eating the lamb in the Eucharist. That's what we do. We fulfill our peace because Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God. And uh, he fulfills the Passover meal. He fulfills all sacrifices, all sin offerings, all of the tabernacle life. Jesus fulfills all of it because Jesus in his divinity and his eternal deity, he completes what those e- temporary sacrifices can never have done in the Old Testament. Jesus is our remedy from the eternal consequences of sin and death. Jesus comes to save us from that and he fulfills all of the, the entire tabernacle life. So this entire tabernacle life, this was the one place the Israelites centered their entire life on. This was their place of encounter with God. This was their place of sacrifice, thanksgiving, and encounter with God. So when you entered into the uh, when you entered into the tabernacle, the first thing that you would see would be an altar, an altar for the daily sacrifices, for sin offerings, thanksgiving. Uh, um, and you'd bring different gifts according to the sin that you had on your heart. And then right behind that, would there would be a bronze lava, which had like purifying water for people to be cleansed. And this foreshadows baptism, but also just like the baptismal fonts that we have in the Catholic Church. And then after that, you uh, would enter into like the outer sanctuary, which had three things. It had the golden lampstand or the menorah, which is actually a foreshadowing of the magisterium, the the illumination of the light of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the truth of the church. Then presence, be- presence bread, which uh, also re- is referred to as show bread, which is also pointing to Jesus in the Eucharist. And actually what we have in the Catholic Church is U- Eucharistic adoration. Then there was incense, which there will always be incense used in the form of worship and then between right outside right dividing that the outer sanctuary from the inner sanctuary um would be the veil so the veil is pointing uh is uh foreshadowing of jesus's flesh where when and actually when jesus was when he died on that cross that veil of the in the tabernacle was torn in two and so we have access to the father in jesus everywhere and and once you stepped into the veil, you walked into the Holy of Holies. And then once you stepped into the Holy of Holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant, which is a foreshadowing of Mary, who contained, uh, so the Ark, the Ark of the Old Covenant had manna, the, the miraculous bread from heaven that God uh, provided to the Israelites on their journey out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. That foreshadowed um jesus the true bread of life in the eucharist and then the the ten commandments so the law jesus is the fulfillment of the law he is the word made flesh and then aaron's rod or staff which who is the high priest jesus is the eternal high priest those three things were contained in the ark of the old covenant mary contains that in the ark of the new covenant all in jesus and then even jesus Fulfills in his church the entire liturgical calendar. The liturgical calendar of the Jews were were seven uh, seven um, feasts, which are is very important because now that we're in the Catholic faith and Christianity, there's seven sacraments. God sevened uh, the the his his people. So, liturgical calendar included the Sabbath, Passover, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacles, Booths. Uh, and Jubilee, so those seven feasts all get fulfilled in Jesus. And interestingly enough, the layout of that tabernacle was actually in the shape of a cross. So Jesus uh, actually fulfills literally everything of the tabernacle life in his very being, and in what he fulfilled for his church, and uh, what Mary represents in his, in salvation history. So Jesus fulfills every aspect of the tabernacle, of the Jewish tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle of tabernacles. He makes himself the temple. And that tabernacle life, that was the one place that the Jewish people went to daily for all of these things. And then in the book of Malachi, the last prophet, the last book of the Old Testament, it prophesized the catholic mass because the tabernacle life it was one place that many sacrifices needed needed to happen where the catholic mass it happens everywhere but it is celebrating the one eternal sacrifice of Jesus, and it's making that present. And so that is Malachi in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. It says, and this actually, we say this sometimes in in the Mass, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And that is prophesying the Catholic mass, the Catholic mass that makes present that one eternal pure offering, that sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary that makes present from the rising of the sun to its setting around the entire world. And he is the fulfillment of the King of David. He is the King of Kings. And he's also the fulfillment of the son of David, Solomon, who was also, was obviously a king whose queen was his mother, the queen mother, Mary. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. And then, um, so he fulfills everything that the prophets pointed to. The prophets prophesied that there would be a Messiah. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. There Emmanuel, God, would be born of a virgin, the mother of God. He would be persecuted, killed, born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah. He fulfills all of that. Jesus fulfills all the prophets because all the prophets spoke of him and fulfills what the, um, what uh, Isaiah and other books and other prophets speak about. The There would be an embodiment of a new covenant, and that's fulfilled in Jesus. And then uh, some other things that I think, like, because of Jesus, these things are fulfilled. These are like kind of the peripheral fulfillments. Jesus, because of Jesus, Mary is fulfilled because of Jesus. She is the new ark of the New covenant. She is the new Eve. She is the queen mother of the king. She is Zion, Israel, who has been anticipating and waiting for a perfect vessel vessel to deliver the word of God someone to receive it with complete faith and obedience, which Mary perfectly did. And then he, because of Jesus, there is the Catholic Church. It is the new Israel, the tribes, the authority, the priesthood is perfected, the papacy. Noah's Ark was a prefigurement of Peter's boat, the Catholic Church, and all the liturgical calendars. All of these things that we have, like feasts and liturgical events, it said in Leviticus 23, 14, and other parts that all of these things would be perpetually instituted. They would not be changed, they, but they would be perfected in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. Oh my goodness, I love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for this incredible episode. I know I talked about a ton and covered a lot. I didn't even realize it's been this long. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but just to recap this whole thing, C.S. Lewis, once again, christianity if false is of no importance and if true of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important jesus is the most important to our life and to live life abundantly here and now he is waiting for you to just say his name just throughout the day today if you're having anxiety just say jesus give me your peace say it with your heart say jesus i give you my heart I open my heart to you. I ask that you reveal yourself to me. Jesus is alive and living here and now. He is waiting to just reveal himself to you and he's gonna just give you life and so much joy and peace. But please just pray for me. I'm praying for all of you. God bless.